It's interesting because if, when you come over here to this side of the world, there's a lot of things that you and I sort of would take for granted, but people here just don't know. Like nobody here knows who Elvis is, for example. They've really? No really? No, they have no idea. But they, everyone here knows two people. They know Oprah and they know Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> that, that puts Shakespeare in pretty rarefied company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we're joined by David Pearson. Hello, David. Hello. Very happy to be here. We're glad to have you. David Pearson is an actor, director, and lecturer living in Doha, Qatar, in the Gulf region of the Middle East. He's a member of the Doha Players, which is the leading acting company in Doha for 65 years. He has had lead roles in numerous productions, including Hamlet, Macbeth, The Tempest, Les Mis, Women in Black, The Importance of Being Earnest, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, and Oklahoma. And he is currently in pre-production for King Lear, which he'll be directing in Qatar in the spring of 2019. Well, welcome, David. That's that's quite a, quite a resume. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Everything from, from Shakespeare to, to Les Mis and, and Oklahoma and the importance of being earnest. We were delighted to get your email to discover that we have a listener who's bringing Shakespeare's words to life in the Middle East. And I admit that I had to look up Qatar on a map when I was prepping <laughs> for this interview. How on earth did you find yourself in Qatar? Well, it's a bit of a story. I've actually lived in several countries. When I was younger... I thought I was going to be a college professor, and I was on the way. I was accepted into Temple to do a PhD in English. I wanted to do post-colonial literature. I'm half Irish as well, so post-colonial literature would include Ireland. <laughs> and, works, uh, yes. <laughs> and then I had one of those things that you know people talk about sometimes. I, I had a cancer scare. It turned out to be nothing, but for two weeks, I literally walked around thinking, I'm going to die. <laughs> and, so, oh. and so I told Temple I wasn't coming. I went and hiked the Appalachian Trail. I joined an organization called VSO, Volunteer Service Overseas, which is basically British Peace Corps. And then I went to Africa and then ended up in Qatar teaching English. Mm. Or as I tell my English friends, teaching American. American. <laughs> How long have you been there? I've been here 11 and a half years. It's hard to believe. Wow, that is a long time. So it really is home for you now. Yeah, I've made a nice life and uh, got married here. I have a little baby now. Well, congratulations. Um, yeah, congrats. Thank you. Tell us about the Doha Players and how you got involved with them. Well, the Doha Players has been here for more than 60 years. It was started by English expats when there was really nothing here but sand. We have a lot of support from the government. Qatar has been really good to us. We performed at the National Theater a lot and at the National Convention Center and other smaller theaters. And it's a part of the community now. Who makes up the cast? Is it English speakers or is it uh, native Qatarians? Well, one of the wonderful things I like about it is we, we did Hamlet last year. And we actually had 11 different nationalities in our cast. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> and it was wonderful because there's people from all over the world. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were both South African women. We had people from the Netherlands, England, Canada, Australia, Philippines, Malaysia. The only reason they came together is they loved Shakespeare. And so <laughs> it was wonderful. I gave a Shakespeare acting workshops and I had people all different nationalities. Some of them came because, you know, they knew the name Shakespeare. And then once they got into the acting, they just loved it. So you mentioned that the casts tend to be multinational. Who makes up the audience?
audience. It's also very multinational. Um, you know, here a lot of people wear the traditional dress. So a lot of women will have the, they call them abayas, they're long black robes with the black headscarf. And the men, a lot of the men wear the thobe. It's like basically a white robe. And so when you're on stage and you look out into the audience, you see people dressed, you know, in European clothing, but you also see lots of people dressed in the traditional clothes, the thobes and the abayas. It was wonderful. We did Tempest and we were we were acting a scene right on the edge of the stage. And there was a, a long row of it looked like college students, Arab college students in headscarves and everything laughing, just laughing. So it was one. <laughs> and, you know, of course, that's the Tempest. We weren't changing the language. They were understanding the language and laughing, really enjoying it. You are obviously bringing Shakespeare to people who have a good understanding of English and can relate to Shakespeare's language, but I imagine that that you also have challenges conveying Shakespeare to people whose first language is other than English. At least half of our audiences will be people for whom uh, English is a second language. And so we do a lot of movement work, gestures, also making the language very clear. We have a lot of physical comedy, uh, physical and physical acting in our performances to make it easier for the audiences. Qatar, according to Garrett's research, is a unit Terry constitutional monarchy is that correct yes okay yes, that is. so there must be some challenges and in your email you said having to deal with a censor has made you admire shakespeare's gleeful obfuscations and punning can you expand <laughs> on that a little bit <laughs> absolutely i mean for example when we did Hamlet last year, I edited it down to about two hours. And then I had to take it to the censor. Even I was editing for length, but I didn't have to edit any of his language. You know, I really didn't have to change any of his language, which is wonderful because he had to write for a censor. And because I have to go to a censor, I see how clever he was in a lot of his language. Of course, he has the most raunchy puns that are just so well hidden. But it's not just his puns. He has, for example, in Hamlet, when he says to uh, Ophelia, do you think I meant country matters? Mm. That's not something that the censor is going to pick up on, the pun and the word country. But it's not just his, it's not just the those kinds of puns. He also, he has ideas that for his time might have been a bit subversive. So, for example, also in Hamlet, just before he's getting ready to do the his fight at the end of the play, and Horatio says says to him you know you don't have to do this you don't want to and he says um not a wit we defy augury and then he goes on and says and he's talking about death if it be not now it is not to come if it be not to come then it will be now if it be not now yet it will come the readiness is all and then he says since no man has aught of what he leaves what is it to leave the times the idea being i think there's nothing after death which would be something that which would be a very subversive idea in the time he was writing. Mm -hmm. Since we take nothing with us when we die, what does it matter if we leave before our time? Yeah. Well, you he know? certainly did so speculate a great deal about what it meant to die and, and certainly floated some ideas that would have challenged orthodoxy. We're sort of going all over the place, but I really am fascinated by doing Lear in a monarchy. How is that going to resonate, do you think? Right. Well, well I haven't got censor approval yet. So. <laughs> 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 well, back to this whole idea of censors. I imagine you've had to work with a censor uh, all along. I assume that a censor's job is to censor, and if they're not censoring, they're not doing their job. So I'm, 
Um, Have you had times when, you, when you've been scratching <laughs> your head about what they've chosen to uh, excise from your work? I'll give you an example from Shakespeare. We did, when we did The Tempest, you know, there's the great scene with the clowns and they have a bottle they're drinking and, and then they, they come upon Caliban and, and Caliban tastes the ambrosia of the gods and, and then he thinks they're gods because they have this uh, amazing liquor. Mm-hmm. Well, the censor told us, it didn't make us change any of the words, but the censor said, don't bring an alcoholic bottle on, just use a cup. <laughs> <laughs> The Catherys, they're not insecure. You know, they want us to respect the culture. They ask that people don't flaunt things. So, And they're also, when it comes to Lear, for example, they're not really, they know they have support of the people. They're not on the edge of their seats worrying about revolution here. It's a, society is quite stable. But it sounds like they, that they have suggestions that have not only to do with the text, but also with staging and, and props. Is that, <laughs> do the censors <laughs> att- attend rehearsals or performances? They can. They always have the right to. In fact, we always have a censored night of performances. You know, it's usually our dress rehearsal. But I'll give you another example. This isn't from Shakespeare, but this is from Les Mis. We couldn't say the word bastard, so we changed it to dastard. <laughs> <laughs> you dastardly fellow. <laughs> <laughs> The subject of language is something that you brought up in our email correspondence. And you mentioned that growing up surrounded by many different accents has helped to clue you into some possible OP pronunciations and puns. And you, you brought in some tantalizing examples. So this is maybe the point in the podcast where we start to examine the text a little bit more. I have a list of the puns that you submitted in front of me. Do you have one or do you happen to have one in front of you or shall, shall I read them I, to you? I do. Okay. Um, shall I go from the first one? Just preface this. I, Jim and I often talk about how watching John Barton's series playing Shakespeare influenced I, us. I, I so don't. isn't it fantastic? I mm-hmm. actually have his, I have the book right in front of me. It was delightful to hear him in one particular episode make his way into the back country and, and have conversations with with locals who have accents and dialects that, that may harken back more nearly to, to the way that the language sounded for Shakespeare's contemporaries and, and how the, the aphorisms that, that were in play in, in Shakespeare's text are, are still being kicked around today, more or less. Just on that very thing, I found being raised in the southern United States, I found that we've kept a lot of very Shakespearean language. For example, when Hamlet first speaks to Polonius, and Polonius's first words to him are, how is your majesty? And then Hamlet says, well, and then God have mercy. You know, in the South, where I'm from, people still say, God have mercy. You know, like, I have to talk to this guy. We still say that, you know, but if you see a performance for a lot of a lot of English actors, for example, they'll just say, well, God have mercy. Right. You know? Whereas when I played it, when I played Hamlet, he said, how is your majesty? And I went, did well. And then I turned to the audience and went, God have mercy. And the audience just all broke out laughing. And they're all different nationalities, but they understood. Right. <laughs> I got to talk to this guy. And it's wonderful that all these little Shakespearean bits of language are preserved in different places. There are those scholars who say that the Shakespearean dialect approximates the Appalachian dialect. But for sure, what it does is it often will change the pronunciation of words and make them mean something else. Well, I can give you one of the puns that jumped out at me because I spend a lot of time with English people with very different accents. From King Lear when he says, or bear forked animal. Well, I know that I, I have friends and I also have family who don't say fork. They say fork. And you can hear the resonance there, mm-hmm. the poor bear forked animal. And who can know? But it does make you wonder if Shakespeare wasn't hiding his language. 
Because, I mean, if you go to different parts of England, the word fork can sound very much like the F word. Yep. And I understand, you know, that Shakespeare was living in a, at London at the time. was very multicultural. People from all over with many different accents and language was changing so much. What's fascinating to me is the more we talk is, is that Qatar seems like that. Qatar is a very international city, is it not? It Doha. Is. Yeah. And so you do have this mixture of, of sounds that you must get on the streets of Doha that you don't get in, like, Denver. And then you add to the fact that you have to deal with a sensor, and, and <laughs> Doha sounds like Elizabethan England. <laughs> it's, you know, I've actually, I've often thought that, but it's the same kind of mix. And something else that it does to your ear, I didn't really realize that it was doing this so much, but you hear such extreme accents of English that you really learn to interpret sounds that you, someone else wouldn't really understand. Being around so many different accents, it, it tunes your ear into language in different ways. Speaking of language, you mentioned that technique is important, but that you have only two absolute rules. Perform so that the audience can understand on first hearing, and don't be boring. Right. <laughs> we'll get to the second one, but the first one, you know, dovetails perfectly with the idea of language. Can you illuminate us a little bit on how you go about performing so that the audience can understand on first hearing? That's a phrase that I got from Simon Russell Beale. I heard an interview with him, and he said that was his that was his first rule because the audience only gets to hear it one time. It's not a classroom. You can't read it again and again and try to understand it. I, I do think that technique is important. I, I have Peter Hall's book, you know, Shakespeare's Advice to the Players, and I, I think he has lots of good advice on technique, but I think he goes too far when he says the, the sanctity of the line is paramount, and that the you destroy Shakespeare's language by acting single words rather than lines. Uh, a wonderful example, I saw Kenneth Branagh do, I just saw his movie, you know, Much Ado About Nothing. It's that, it's that great soliloquy where they tricked him, you know, to thinking that, that uh, Beatrice loves him, and he, he says basically, she loves me? Why? <laughs> if you just said the line, it'd be, she loves me, why this must be requited. But he breaks it, and he says, she loves me? Why? This must be requited. And it's, it makes it just fantastic, you know? So breaking the line sometimes can just really enrich the language so much. Breaking the line often has to do with a, you know, your personal interpretation of the text. When I first started approaching Shakespeare, I, just, I went through everything. But then I found that going through and trying to understand the sense first really helped. Yes. And then later on, I, I understood that actually teachers like uh, Patsy Rodenberg suggest that, that when you're trying to learn the lines, go for the sense first. But I've also heard other actors that I admire. For example, Tom Hiddleston is actually a very good Shakespearean oh, yeah. actor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw an interview that he did on the Muse of Fire, the Globes series, the Muse of Fire. Tom Hiddleston actually has two videos on there. And when I first saw his video, I only knew him from Thor. Right, right exactly. <laughs> I was like, here's the guy from Thor. I wonder right. if he has anything interesting to say about Shakespeare. <laughs> and I was listening to it, and he actually just blew me away. And he went to drama school, and he was taught all of the rules, like don't breathe in the middle of a line, that's his punctuation, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, but he did the play, uh, The Changeling, with uh, Thomas Middleton. And he was, there was an actor, Will Keane, was playing the florist, the villain who's very ugly. And he said he would just watch Will Keane playing the florist, and he was amazed because Keane just broke all of the rules that he had learned in drama school. And he gave it this wonderful example of a couple of lines of blank first. And if you just say the lines straight, the florist is very ugly. And so he's saying of himself, I know this face is bad enough, but I have seen far worse with better fortune. And he said, but that's not what Will Keane did. He said, Will Keane just said, I know this face is bad enough, 
But I've seen far worse. With that version. But the, the point was, if you just say it, the audience will understand it better. You know, John Barton talks about this in Plain Shakespeare. He says that really the, the blank verse was there as an aid to the actors, that it wasn't necessarily about poetry, that it could be poetry at times, but that it was first and foremost an aid to the actors and should be treated that way. Garrett and I couldn't agree more, I don't think. And so when you're approaching a role, what do you look for in the blank verse that helps you as the actor? So, for example, in the speech, All the World's a Stage, Jake Reese's famous speech, it begins in the middle of a line. The Duke has been speaking, and he has half a line as well. So you know, that picking up at that half line, that Jaquise speaks immediately, that there's not a pause. And also, if you scan the line, the first word, all, is stressed. So you know when you're acting to come straight in and the first word stressed. Or at least that's how you could do it. He's giving you hints that this is how you can do it. And also, I found if you do scan the lines, it gives you a hint about which of the words Shakespeare thought were important. For example, in Friends, Roman Countryman, Lend Me Your Ears, that first line can be played so many different ways. But if you follow the meter, I think it gives you a clue how to play it. So instead of it just being friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, it could be friends, Romans, lend me your ears. And why does that matter? Well, that made me imagine that there's all of this rabble out there and they're making lots of noise and he starts with friends, but he's drowned out. And so his next punch of his word is Romans. It seems like it might be a hint from Shakespeare. Maybe not. You mentioned Jaquies and yeah, David, could you, could you set the stage for us? Who is Jaquies speaking to and what's just happened? So first off, Jaquies is a bit of a cynic. And I, I do wonder if he started out as an idealist, but he's quite cynical. And he's, he's also very, very comical throughout the play. And they're out in the forest and they've just been accosted by a hungry young man and they sort of laugh at him. But anyway, the, the Duke says, do you see, we're, we're not all alone in, in, in our unhappiness in this world. And then Jaquies starts in to his speech. This is David Pearson presenting Jaquies' monologue, All the World's a Stage from As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7. All the world's a stage and all the men and women many players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant, mewling, and puking the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shiny morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school and then the lover sighing like furnace <gasps> with a woeful ballad made to his mistress Ibra and then the soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like the pod jealous in honor sudden and quick and quarrel seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, fair round belly, good chicken lined, with eyes severe and beard a formal cut, full of wise saws and martyr instances. So he plays his part. The six age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, spectacles on nose, pouch on side, 
His youth got hands. Well said. Uh, a world too wide for his shrunk shank. And his big and manly voice turning again towards childish treble. Pipes and whistles and his sound. Last scene of all. It ends this strange, eventful history. His second childishness in mere, oh, oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, one of the things I found really interesting about what you just did is that, first of all, you're using your voice in its extremity, and at times you're adding sounds to the text and lengthening certain sounds. And I found I found that very interesting and makes it almost alive, particularly in this medium where we're just listening, we're not watching you. Right. It's a monologue, but I think it should be played to the audience. I've heard this speech done so many times, and it just it seems to dull the audience. Because if you just say the lines, if you just speak them, people tune out. Uh, John Barton talks about this. He says, actually, that he thinks a lot of people don't actually listen to dramatic speeches. For example, when To Be or Not To Be comes on, people just sort of tune out and they're like, oh, there's that famous speech. And they sort of tune out for a minute. And then when it's finished, they tune back in. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about cynical. I know. I like John Barton, you know, who's given it more life to Shakespeare. And so I think Shakespeare had, he just was so playful with his language that that when we act it, we should act it playfully. And we should also act it in a way that's fun for the audience, that, that really brings the lines alive. I'm not sure if I just did that in that reading. <laughs> well, we are connected via the internet halfway around the world. But I mean, certainly, I mean, certainly you were, you created a character and you brought that person to life and he was embodying the people he was saying. And it was a surprising speech. I heard a lot of fun wordplay and playing with rhythm and melody and pitch. And I, I noticed that when you were speaking those lines, I think it was pitched a bit higher than your than your natural speaking voice is pitched and i and i wondered what it is about jaquees that makes that feel like the natural voice for him well i think at the beginning of the speech he's a bit exasperated so he's like all oh, the world's a stage you know I, everything we do is just acting <laughs> <laughs> you know it's just, <laughs> it's just i think the thing is the duke and the other people seem to be out in the woods having a great time and i think jaquees is would like to be back at his castle. <laughs> yeah, with his cozy bed. And... There's a line, for example, then a soldier, full of strange oaths, being like the pod, jealous and honor, sudden quick and coil, seeking the bubble, reputation, even in the cannon's mouth. And I do that little pop. Did yeah. you hear it? Yeah, so yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the sounds I was I, referring to. What I would hope the audience could hear is that the soldier is trying to get a reputation, get honor, but reputation and honor is just a bubble. It's a soap bubble. It pops. Pop. It's just this, this line that just breaks your heart. And so the little, little pop sound that I added was just to try to help the audience clue into the idea that, that it's just a bubble. It's just a soap bubble. It could pop at any moment. The other thing I noticed in your performance was there are a lot of midline stops in this speech. And I noticed that as you got to that, you'd accelerate into the next section. Is that something that you do purposefully? What I was trying to do at moments like that is to do a little um, gear shift, gear change. Uh, John Barton calls them gear changes, where you do a sudden switch to keep the listener interested, change the tone, 
And Shakespeare does this so many times in his soliloquies, uh, as you know. Kenneth Branagh, in Much Ado About Nothing, again in, in the soliloquy where they, they've tricked him, and he's, he's talking about how he never thought he would get married, you know, and never thought it was a possibility, and he's just talk, talking himself through it. And then he's, he's being very serious, and then uh, Branagh has him go, the world must be people. and just shifts make those gear shifts and they're they're just so i mean they're there shakespeare put them there and they're there to be exploited david thank you so much for joining us today it's been a delight talking to you thank you my pleasure david thank you so much this was terrific oh thank you it's my pleasure you know i look forward to hearing it and i look forward to continuing to hear the your other podcasts as well i found when I first started doing Shakespeare and I was, I was looking around, I was, you know, I, your podcast is one of the ones that I found. I was like, oh, fantastic. Thank you. Oh. Thank you for this information in the podcast. And That's nice to hear. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I guess we've been around for a long time, Jim. Yeah, we've been, we've been, <laughs> we've been at this, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.